kick off episode 318 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear with a song. The song is Road Trip. It is by the Akron, Ohio surf band The Kahuna Kings from their new album, Who Wants to Party with The Kahuna Kings. You can find them on Bandcamp and CD Baby. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes that you can check out when you're done listening to this conversation I'm going to have with friend of the show, friend of mine, Jeff Owens. Now, Jeff has been active on Facebook, part of the Monster Kid Radio community for a while now. He is the man behind the Classic Horrors Club. You can find that at Classic Horrors dot club he's one of the co-hosts of the classic horrors club podcast with well another person you should know rich chamberlain he's also a writer over at boom howdy and he's a big fan of the invisible man returns because i mean the man's got good taste invisible man returns from 1940 that's the movie on deck this week and i want to get to it so uh you know normally i talk a little bit longer but no let's do this invisible man returns jeff owens right after this could be true, you know. There could actually be a man named Barnabas Collins, and he could actually be a real vampire. <laughs> House of Dark Shadows from MGM. See how the vampires do it. Rated <laughs> GP, all ages, parental guidance. C-3PO, Loki, Mace Windu, Dr. Bruce Banner, Captain Rex, Venom, Princess Leia, Jean Grey, Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. 
Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. The Disney Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. I said earlier this year, maybe it was episode 300, that I wanted to have some new voices on Monster Kid Radio, and I've got a new voice. This week we are joined by the man behind the Classic Horrors Club. Did I get that right? Yes, yes. Classic Horrors Club. Okay, good, because I do my research here. Jeff Owens, welcome to the show. Thank you, Derek. It is a pleasure and an honor, truly, to be on here. I have to say, I wasn't with you from the start. That uh, was no fault of anybody's but my own, but I have backtracked, listened to every episode. It's probably been two years I've been listening regularly, and from those early episodes, I thought, one day, I, I hope I can be on Monster Kid Radio. Oh, wow. Well, um yeah. <laughs> of course, we don't know if this will actually air because it could be a horrible episode again. No one's fault but my own. Oh, no. Come on now. Jeff, listeners, Jeff is one of the co-hosts of a brand new podcast. As of this recording, there's been two episodes. Uh, depending on when this goes out, there might be a third and whatever your recording schedule allows. It's the Classic Horrors Club podcast with you and Monster Kid Radio mainstay, Rich Chamberlain. I got to say. I'm a big fan of that show. It's only two episodes in, but I love it. I think it's going to be a great voice added to the classic monster movie potosphere. I love it. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're kind of figuring it out. Of course, Rich has got more experience than I do and years of, of calling in and familiarity in the community. But we've already caught on to a couple things that we think are going to work, and uh, we're really excited about moving forward with that. Uh, the most recent episode that I've heard, you know, obviously episode two, has actually inspired me to go back and look at the movie that you covered, The Day of the Triffids. I've never seen it. And uh, there's a chance I'm going to be talking about it here on the show with somebody else in the near future because of what you guys did. So thank you. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's uh, one thing I like about it and, and listening to your show is finding new movies. Well, not that you need help finding them, but you know, hearing good movies that other people have watched. I had never seen Day of the Triffids either. So I, I really enjoyed that. And uh, I think that's the, more of that in the future. Uh, Rich has had a lot of ideas so far, but uh, I think I'm going to 
uh, assign him some new movies if you can find one that he hasn't seen. Yeah, that, that is a thing with Rich, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he's seen quite a bit. Uh, I think sometimes he's seen more than most of us. He probably has, actually. There's probably no, no, yeah. no, no wiggle room there. Um, speaking no, of in, inspiring yeah. uh, Day of the Triffids for you to do that, our first one, uh, King Kong 76, was such a great idea, I thought, because the anniversary was coming up, and it you ruined our glory. I mean, you didn't ruin it. I, I Oh, no. You know, it came out, and I was like, oh, darn it, you know, it, uh, but... I think a lot of people were doing it about that time for the anniversary. And I think everyone's got a unique viewpoint on that. Uh, certainly your guest on that episode. Yeah. Paul McComas loves that movie. Loves that movie a lot. And it's a good flick. It's a good yeah, flick. Yeah. You know, uh, but you know, it's got his fans and it's got his detractors. And yeah, last year was the 40th anniversary and it did get a lot of, a lot of mention actually. I was a little, really surprised to see it brought up on a number of websites and well, your podcast covered it as well. And you know, even if you cover a movie that I've covered or vice versa, there's always room for one more good one is what I've always believed. So, you know, have at it. Nobody has a podcast that has your take on a movie. That's except true. Except your own. You know That's, what I mean? I told Rich and I'll tell you, you know, all I have is my opinion, my perspective. I don't claim to know all the facts. I look forward to learning what you have to say about today's movie. You know, I've done some research. I have some information. But uh, really all that I have unique is my opinion. And that's all you need to make a unique and interesting podcast. So listeners, check it out. It's the Classic Horrors Club podcast, which as of right now is still only available as part of the Downright Creepy Horror Entertainment Network. Is that right? Yep. Phantom Podcast Network through Downright Creepy. Excellent. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to this. It's also in iTunes, I believe. So you can find it there as well. Or you can just listen to it straight off the website. Just check it out. Yep, yep. When you're done listening to this, of course, because we've got a movie to talk about, Jeff. But before we get to that, there's something we do with every brand new guest on Monster Kid Radio. Do you know what that is? I do. I cannot wait. The Classic Five. The Classic Five. So, any listeners who have not been along for the ride, it's been a little while since I've done this, actually. The Classic Five is a game that we play here on the show to help listeners learn a little bit more about our guests through our favorite subject, classic monster movies. I've got a deck of cards here, uh, 50 or 60 different cards, and each card has a yes or no, this or that style question involving classic monster movies. There's no wrong answers. Are you ready to play the Classic Five, sir? I am, and just let's reinforce that part. There are no wrong answers. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody seems to hang on to that. It's like, no, it's it's all good. You know, it can expose you. You're you're laying yourself uh, bare here, not knowing what's going to be asked. Well, card number one is a doozy. You ready? Yep. Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing? (sighs) I have to say Peter Cushing. Yeah, well, you're not just saying that because it's me, right? No, 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 no. That's... uh, (laughs) You know, I would fumble around trying to explain it. That's just something maybe that's in my nature. I definitely lean towards Peter Cushing, although I love them both. Okay, well, card number two. Oh, kind of sort of related, maybe, depending on what your answer is. Favorite actor to play Dracula? That would have to be Christopher Lee. That's the one I grew up with. I mean, I grew up with Lugosi as well, but concurrently, I suppose, watching Universal on TV, watching Hammer at, at the drive-in, uh, I'd say Christopher Lee. Uh, wins with an edge. Okay. No, like I said, no wrong answers. And depending on what day you catch me, I either go with Lee or Lugosi. Yeah. Depending. All right, card number three. Question number three. What character from a classic monster movie would you want as an action figure? 
Well, uh, this is kind of interesting. I've seen some lately that are, I don't think they're really produced action figures, but maybe just art for them. There was one for the fog and it was a little plastic container, you know, with cotton in there. So, you know, I was thinking, <laughs> how, how about a real Invisible Man action figure, which is just a, a card with plastic and there's nothing in there. Or uh, <laughs> maybe the blob where you've got a, a card and some Play-Doh or something in there. I'd go with something more abstract like that. I think those are fun. <laughs> I have seen the uh, the artwork for the the fog action figure. It's not real; you can't buy it in the store. But I have seen that. And that's pretty fun. I've also seen the the other one that makes me giggle is the Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen Star Wars action right, figure. Right, it's just a charred skeleton. Yeah, that's a little dark. It, it is. Yeah. Okay. And, and I have to answer like this because I. <laughs> A few months ago, probably would have said uh, it the terror from beyond space, but they did finally make one of those. Santa Claus was good and brought it to me, or well, my niece did. So, uh, if you need a real answer, that was what I wished, and they had one. That's on my list. I so want to get my hands on that thing. Yeah. All right. Next question: Billy the Kid versus Dracula, or Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter? I would lean towards Billy the Kid versus Dracula because of John Carradine. I think. Generally, I prefer Frankenstein stories more, but I guess these really aren't Frankenstein or Dracula stories strictly. So I'll go with uh, Dracula. Okay. All right. And the last question, this is number five. What two 1940s monster movies would make a great double feature? Hmm. That's a good question. And our movie today is from 1940. You could go the easy route, I suppose, because Invisible Man Returns and Invisible Woman both came out in 40. Totally different movies. Maybe that would be a good double feature since the tone is so different. I'm, I'm going to go with that since that's fresh okay. in mind. If you were going to do that, which one would you play first? I know chronologically Returns came out first, but if you were to feature them in a theater or in a, in a film screening setting, which one would you do first? I'm pretty much a stickler for going chronologically. So, Really? Yeah. It, it, and I'm trying to think, since the tones are so different, it kind of depends on what audience you think you're going to get if you if think they want to see a romantic screwball comedy or you know a thriller um, depends what time of day. Maybe you need something a little lighter earlier or later. I, I'm not sure. It is a tough call, and it's so odd to look at those two movies and see that they came out the same year, and they're so different. Right. They are so different. <laughs> they have Invisible on the title, and that's about it. Well, and all the Invisible series are pretty much different. Yeah, on Invisible Agent. And- Invisible Man's Revenge probably gets closest to the original, but not... And then do you consider Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man as part of that? And I guess he kind of sort of is. Griffin's mentioned. Oh, yeah, I do, for sure. Yeah. And yeah. I would even consider Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein because of the Invisible Man's voice at the end. Ah, there you go. A little bit of a cameo there. Well, thank you for playing the Classic Five. Before sure, we thank you. It. Thank you. Uh, appreciate it. And next time we have you on the show, we'll probably play again because I am working on a new deck. Oh, good. With, with brand new questions. So. All right. Bring a ch- have a chance to bring it back for everybody. Anyway... Thank you for playing. Let's talk about this movie, The Invisible Man Returns. Yes, yes. Fear. Fear of the unknown, the unseen grips the populace. As a human being made invisible and insane by a potent drug, preys on the citizenry, intent on vengeance. Prison walls cannot hold him. Scotland Yard cannot stop him. And while science works frantically, while a loved one waits and hopes, 
The invisible hands of a condemned murderer deal out death and destruction. Spectre, I don't understand. Jeffrey, he's invisible. Why can't I see him? Oh, he's here, is he? Catch him, Inspector. He wants to kill me. Hey, you can't go upstairs. Oh, good man, I do. Okay, pray, darling. I can leave any moment I like. Take care of yourself, darling. I'll be all right. Helen, don't look at me like that. Jeffrey, he didn't kill Michael. Oh, didn't he? That shows how little you know, dear old Richard. No, 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 no! I was excited when you mentioned it on Facebook because I've been wanting to invite you to the show anyway. I wanted to promote the new podcast and your website and everything that you're doing. And I know you've been supporting MKR, so it's like, you know, let's get them on the show. Let's talk about a movie. And when you mentioned this, I'm like, okay, that's it. That's the one. Let's talk about The Invisible Man Returns. Right. And I think when I posted it on uh, the group page for Monster Kid Radio, I said that it, I possibly liked it more than the original. And I'll, I will stand by that and, uh, and repeat that, watching them both again. They're different... Similar but different, I think that Invisible Man Returns has more story to it. I'm more into the story, to the screenplays, to the writing of it. So Invisible Man definitely has a style that James Whale brought to it. I I noticed things last night I hadn't noticed before, camera movement and angles up high looking down. Invisible Man Returns doesn't have much of that. It's strictly competently directed, really, with no flourish. But uh, it's the story that that I do uh, like and take to in that one. Well, we're not playing the classic five anymore, so I don't know if it's fair to say there are no wrong answers here. Uh, uh, to say this one's better than the other, I, I can't keep a straight face. I kind of agree with you, actually. Yeah, and, and you know, I never say it's better than. I just say I, I know. like it. I agree with you. I think The Invisible Man is a classic film. It is hands down one of Universal's best of the era. I know that some listeners, and I'm looking at you, Steve Sullivan, don't necessarily include it with the <laughs> we'll probably ought to explain that. Don't necessarily include it with the other classic monsters of the era because it's a scientific monster versus the supernatural monsters that you get with Dracula and the Wolfman and all these others. But I do think it's a mainstay. And when you think about the classic monsters of Universal, of course the Invisible Man is going to come up. Universal itself sometimes packages it with the classic monsters when they put out a set sometimes they don't kind of depends on how they're feeling i suppose but there are what five films in this franchise yes not including out of Costello, not including frankenstein it's an invisible man it's a science fiction monster i consider it a universal monster and i think the first one's great but i agree with you this one definitely has a stronger more interesting story to me and i will uh, disagree with steve on that because i think in the original Invisible Man, he is purely a monster. I mean, he does some monstrous things, crashing a train. He's a monster. And that is something different in the sequel. And I guess we can say it's a sequel. They flash up at the very beginning, a sequel to The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. But he's uh, more of a hero. He, we're, he's the protagonist. We're on his side. And that's definitely not the case uh, with Claude Rains in The Invisible Man. 
there are flashes in the original where you're like, oh, come on now. You know you're a good guy, but you're right. At, at the end, when it's all said and done, he's gone nuts. And there's not – which probably isn't the most kind thing to say. But there's nothing most, you know, nothing more you can do with him. He's, he's already made his choices. He's on the path. He's killed people. That's it. In this one, you can tell that there's a – I feel like there's a real struggle within the character, within the voice work of Vincent Price, who's amazing, walking this line between am I going to just flat out kill this guy or am I going to try to clear my name by making him confess? You know, what, what's, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, and I agree 100%. And you pointed it out in The Invisible Man. We see him. He's already at the point where he has become invisible. We don't really know him, what his history is. And in the first few minutes of Invisible Man Returns, we, we learn more about uh, the character, Vincent Price's character. He's someone uh, we can identify, sympathize with, because we do know more about him, I believe. And it's a more even cast. I, again, I love The Invisible Man. And I did use the word better earlier, and that's not the right word. I think you're absolutely right. But The Invisible Man Returns has a more even cast. There are some spots in The Invisible Man where things are played for very broad comedy, which I know James Whale is known for and very good at. But sometimes it is a little jarring. Yeah, and Invisible Man Returns has its comedy too. It's light moments, mostly through the the police force or Scotland Yard, mm-hmm. CID, Criminal Investigation Department. But you know, one thing Invisible Man Returns does not have Una O'Connor. <laughs> What's your take on Una? I I know James Whale used her a couple of times. So you gotta love her. I mean, but again, watching Invisible Man last night, it, she's just a bit much. Uh, the shrieking and. You know, a little bit of her goes a long way. Yes. It's a really good way to put it. Just a little Una. Just a little Una. Yes. <laughs> Just a pinch. Yeah. <laughs> but don't pinch too hard because then she'll shriek again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but this one does has a more even cast. It's got Vincent Price, who's amazing. And this is his first, well, it's his first universal genre picture, at the very least. Yeah. And his only one for a while, I guess, Probably, oh, House of Wax was probably the one that cemented his position, but that was several years after this. So, yeah, it was his his first genre movie, I, I would say. And I think so, his, too. It was only his fifth movie at all, and one of, of the four before that was a, a TV movie in England. So, really, uh, what is third or fourth theatrical motion picture? Very, very early in his career. Now, of course, he had done some stage work, so he knew how to act, and he knew how to use that incredible voice of his. And I wanted to ask you about that. To me, it didn't really sound like the Vincent Price I knew through a lot of the movie. The only time it did, for sure, was when he was uh, toying with uh, the witness to the crime, and he he was uh, playing up his voice. That sounded very much like uh, the Vincent Price we know, but uh, through just normal conversation in the movie, it didn't sound a lot like him. I think because I've gone back and I've watched some of the earlier Vincent Price, it doesn't have the same maturity that, say, like the House of Wax or Dr. Fibes or any of these iconic Vincent Price horror films have, or really any film that he's been in. He definitely has that, that unique voice, and I think if you ask most people to describe or identify the Vincent Price voice, they go to the 50s, 60s, 70s Price. But if I did feel like it was definitively Price, just a younger Price. Mm-hmm. I found a little bit of information on that. Uh, supposedly at that time, he was kind of fighting 
people thought that he was a British stage actor, sort of, with his voice, so he was kind of trying to Americanize it back a little bit more. Um, oh, okay, it, okay. It even said that he had had his tonsils removed in that year, and I don't know if that was before or after, but at least somebody noticed else noticed that the, his voice wasn't quite, I mean, I mean, yes, you can recognize him, but it certainly not what we become familiar with later. Huh. Well, next time I watch it, I'll be listening for that too. I mean, maybe it's just because I told myself it's Vincent Price and I just knew, I, I, you know, you never see him until that final scene, which is just like an invisible man. You don't see Claude Rains till the end. So right. uh, if you're not paying attention, I, I think you could forget that's who it is. You do see more. I feel like you see more outline of him in this one than you did in The Invisible Man. True. And what I find interesting is that even though he's naked and nobody can see him, it's still definitively Vincent Price right down to his well-kept hair. You know, nobody can see him, but his hair is perfect, you know? Yeah. How did he pull that off? It's not like he can comb his hair in a mirror, you know? Right, right. Uh, yeah, I, I saw that a comment somewhere that uh, how I don't know how much time passes through the film, but at the end when he does appear, you know, he's perfectly shaven and well groomed. And but you know, who knows? That could be a a side effect of the the formula. There we go. Yeah, you know. Speaking of that, I noticed uh, in the first Invisible Man they mention food needs time to digest. You would see it in the system. He can't be invisible until either 30 minutes have passed or he's ready to go swimming or something. But uh, they don't really do too much of that in Invisible Man Returns. The only thing that I think might be added to the mythology, if you want to call it, is that the human blood is what makes him visible again. That wasn't really brought up in the first movie. It was just sort of he died, sort of like the Wolfman, and when he, you know, that's when he returns to his normal form. But uh, they definitely make a point with the transfusion and, and all of that in, in returns uh, that it's human blood that can return him to being visible. And that does also turn up in uh, at least one Invisible Man movie afterwards. So even if they're not that similar or related, there's bits of the mythology that carry through. And I do like that. And I like the other connections to the previous film in this. I like that there's another Griffin. I like that. Scotland Yard knows what's up. That was a big point to me. And I have to believe it's just that file that they built for the first Invisible Man. And it is nine years later. Yeah, the Inspector Samson from the very beginning is not incredulous at all. When somebody says it's like he disappeared, but that's not possible. He's like, oh, isn't it? And that's that's kind of fresh. That's nice to not have that struggle of disbelievers and you're trying to convince them, oh, that this exists. It's kind of nice to get that out of the way and move on with the story. I liked that a lot, too. Now, his subordinates sometimes aren't necessarily the most, shall we say, efficient. But he, played by Cecil Calloway, who's amazing, by the way. I love this guy in everything I've seen him in, even movies like The Shaggy Dog or Zots. I love him in it. <laughs> Yeah. He's just great. I mean, obviously, more traditional Monster Kid radio fare would be like The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, uh, and even one of the Mummy films, I believe. But yeah, he's just fantastic. Yeah, and uh, there is one scene where you're not sure how he takes his subordinates. They let uh, someone out of the house because they weren't specifically told to watch them, and he, you think first he's scolding them for that, but then he it turns around and he says... Oh, that was good thinking. You thought this, you know, blah, blah, blah. That will lead us to him. I know, interesting sort of depth of character, a little bit of sarcasm there. And I think that has a lot to do with the delivery to the reason. And I remember the scene you're talking about as well. The delivery from Kellaway is just fantastic with that. There's this edge to the character 
Well, not edge, a freshness. I think it's the best way. That's what you said, right? It's fresh. It's a freshness to the character that you don't see in a lot of these monster movies. A lot of these monster movies, it's, oh, you can't have an invisible man. Or, oh, there's not a wolf creature out there. Oh, you know, it's nice to have a figure, a person, an authority who buys in. And then it changes the tone of the movie and makes it, you used the word thriller earlier, it makes it a thriller, a mystery. It's not just a a monster movie or, or a special effects movie. Yeah, and the one thing, well, there's two things that I would not really criticize, but point out as as maybe not being perfect. One is, yeah, it's a mystery, and the goal is for him to discover who really killed, but he doesn't do a lot of investigating. It really just relies on it sort of dawning on him of this, this one person who was a witness, and he spends his time taunting them. They talk a lot about later having proof and that he needs to share his proof, and that's really it, the statement of one man. There really is no hard evidence. And, uh, and that's fine. You know, we don't need a, a mystery with lots of clues, but it's mystery at, at, at its bare bones. Yeah, this isn't the fugitive. Um, this is, <laughs> although it, I mean, it certainly could have gone that way. But you're right. It's just the word of one man who drinks one or maybe two shots of whiskey a day. He probably loses count. The amount of whiskey this man drinks, uh, his word. Apparently, that's enough for Scotland Yard, but a different time, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I think to counter my opinion just there is it is sort of realistic at the end. I don't know that they really did rely on his witness that the perpetrator confessed, you know, on his death. So I feel like they probably took that more than uh, any evidence that was collected along the way. That's true. That's true. Yeah. At the very end, he does confess and then dies staring at the camera open eyed. It was pretty creepy. Yeah. I, w- I was surprised by that, actually. I didn't expect to see that in a movie in the, you know, from 1940 to have a dead character just staring at the audience as he passes. Huh. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That is a little haunting. Uh, I want to mention a couple of the actors that we're just talking about here. Alan Napier, Alfred from Batman. Yes. Yeah. He, he's the drunk. The, I guess he's a foreman. At, at the quarry, and he's the one that tells Vincent Price what's happened, and then we, of course, have the incredible. Uh, <laughs> I'm he's incredible, and the name uh, Cedric Hardwick. Yes, Cedric good, Hardwick, good. yeah, the incredible Sir Cedric Hardwick as Richard Cobb, the ultimately the, the villain of the piece, and he's just great. You know, I think there's. A couple of tiers. When you think about classic monster movies from Universal specifically, you think Lugosi, Karloff, Chaney, you know, the big three. Right. Maybe you can put Claude Rains in there and a few of the others. But I feel like people like Cedric Hardwick are right underneath there because he's just so good and has done a handful of these movies as well and definitely made his mark. I might even put Cecil Calloway in there because he's done a couple as well. But Cedric Hardwick is just fantastic. Now, granted, I think the second or third time he speaks, we kind of, as an audience figured out what happened and what his motivations are, but still he's enjoyable. Sure. And I'll, I'll add a couple of the cast that uh, were actually uncredited, but a little bit of research, which is the wonderful universal pictures monster book that I looked at. I forgetting the name and the author, but a big book with a yellow uh, dust jacket is wonderful. Apparently there's a couple of, like I say, uncredited, but universal regulars that show up in, in several movies. That's Harry Cording and Mary Gordon. And the way they talk about these two and the, the attention they gave them in this book, I'd almost, I guess, call them the Michael Rippers of Universal. 
but uh, <laughs> wow, now you really are just sucking up. <laughs> uh, Harry plays. Uh, how's this for a character name? Minor saying, "Keep the wig on, Willie." So I, I don't recall that line, but apparently one of the, the miners at, at the coal mine said, keep the wig on, Willie. And then Mary uh, plays the cook. You, she's a little more, uh, I remember her definitely from the beginning, Cookie the Cook. So they, they've been in several movies, Bride of Frankenstein, Black Cat, Mummy's Tomb, a, a whole list. So do you think they were universal contract players? Probably. People on the payroll of whenever we need an extra? Yeah. Well, good for them. I mean, that's cool that they've been able to pop up in a handful of these movies. And maybe through one of these extras like this, I can connect this movie to Creature. Maybe. There you we'll go. See. Yep. Uh, I need to spend a few more minutes looking at it. Yeah, before we started, listeners, Jeff Owens actually brought up, yeah, you know, um, because it's you, I also crotched Creature from the Black Lagoon because I'm sure it'll come up. And so I, I'm sitting here trying to think, how am I going to connect this movie to Creature without going the obvious route? And you, you just did the easiest way to bring it up. Just simply bring it up. So. Yep. <laughs> Let's see, anybody who's watching their clock right now, less than half an hour of talking to Jeff and that happened. Yeah. Hey, uh, what do you know about John Sutton, who played uh, Frank Griffin, Griffin's brother? I don't know much about him. I don't know much about him, unfortunately. Well, he's, he has a very interesting look in the movie, sort of Clark Kentish with the, the round glasses. But, you know, I was looking into him. He's done several movies with Vincent Price. Uh, right. He was in Return of the Fly, wasn't he? Return of the Fly, The Bat. And then even non-genre, he was in Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex before uh, Invisible Man Returns came out. Tower of London, uh, Three Musketeers. So, I, interesting. And, you know, again, you, you mentioned the uh, contract players, and, and you kind of wonder if it's part of that. But these weren't all universal movies. So, I guess maybe at that time, there were just a group of reliable actors that you put in movies, and they, they traveled around. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Like I said, I don't know much about him. I know he's got a great voice. I like the way he sounds. And I think he does a solid job in the film as, you know, this guy who's very cocksure. He's going to help his friend with this Invisible Man formula. And as the movie continues and he struggles to get the antidote, you can see him slowly break down. And then he finally gets to the breaking point after the dinner scene. It's fantastic. I think he does a great job. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of contract players and contracts, I guess Vincent Price was under contract at Universal at the time. And uh, I mentioned Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex before Invisible Man Returns. That was done at Universal. I don't remember how many total he made there. It was seven at the most, and I don't think it was that many. But he only made one more after Invisible Man Returns, and then uh, he was off to another studio. You probably know more about this to me, but I find it fascinating, and I think you've even mentioned it recently. Universal Pictures at the time was not a big major studio. These all movies were all you know B movies, and of course, to me that means they're the best movies. <laughs> B for best. Yes, okay. There's, I like. There's it. I like nothing it. derogatory about calling something a B movie, uh, but <laughs> this was kind of pointed out at the turn of the century or turn of the century, at nineteen forty. There was a big lawsuit in Hollywood against the major studios. It was something about sort of a monopoly at theaters forcing certain movies in. And if they showed something, they had to show another. And they actually got, I guess, a ruling against them or something. And uh, Universal was excluded from that. They weren't considered. So as a result of this, they were taking a different approach and they were focusing on those B-movies rather than big-budget productions at the time. That was, you know, the environment from which Invisible Man Returns sprang. 
following Son of Frankenstein, and if you sort of consider the second wave of universal monsters, I think Son of Frankenstein is probably the first, and then this was then the second, and very successful in that sort of business plan. It's interesting because there's over 10 years that passes between Dracula, the one that kicked off the monster wave, and what has become another one of the iconic monsters of that that cycle, the Wolfman. Wolfman didn't come out until 42. Right. So you have this big stretch because, like you said, the 40s seemed to be this big kick. They were really concentrating on the lower budget productions. Uh, they were really doing a lot of sequels to the horror pictures at the time. You have this one. You've got The Invisible Girl. You've got The Wolfman was an original, but then you've got Frankenstein meets the Wolfman coming up. You've got so many of these these smaller, lower budget movies they have a different feel than the 1930s horror movies, but it's not a bad deal. It's just a different, and I really enjoy it, actually. I feel like, technically, sometimes these movies are better made. And I don't know if that's sacrilege, but... Oh, I don't think so. And I, you notice it if you watch Invisible Man and then Invisible Man Returns. And I don't know if it's just the prints we have these days, but the, the quality is, is definitely different. Uh, in the 40s, the prints that survive that we see are definitely sharper, they seem to have less blips or jumps or, or something, whereas, as I mentioned, Invisible Man may be more stylish and have more flourishes by a more well-known director. You're right. I believe the 40s movies are just uh, better made. And who knows? I mean, you know, maybe the people behind the scenes were just had learned more in 10 years and I'm sure new technology. I think it's hard to argue that they don't look better just technically or physically. You know, maybe it's an age thing, or like you said, the prints were treated better. Who knows? Uh, maybe it's easier to transfer a print from 1940s versus a 1930s print. You know, I was just reading something recently, uh, you know, to kind of bring it forward and bring up another topic that I seem to be talking about a lot lately on Monster Kid Radio with Star Trek, for example. You're not probably going to see things like Deep Space Nine or Voyager hit Blu-ray because CBS at the time when they were making those movies, they were shot in a format that isn't as easy to upconvert to HD. They dumped a ton of money to do Next Generation and bring that up to Blu-ray. And they can put Enterprise on Blu-ray because the technology was already in place at that point. Blu-ray already existed. But to upconvert DS9 and Voyager, it's going to cost them a ton of money because the format in which they were shot wasn't necessarily native or, or, or uh, compatible with the HD technology we have now. And I'm wondering if maybe the filming techniques, the film itself, the way they did the films in the 40s, lends itself better to a restoration or a transfer versus the older prints. Hmm, that could be. That's interesting. That leads me to think about a movie like Invisible Man or Invisible Man Returns that you know, had VHS release, DVD release, and then a Blu-ray release. I think I've picked up here and there that there's a, a group of people that really don't want to see Blu-ray. It's too crisp and too clear. Audiences have never seen that in the past, not even when it was projected in, in theaters for the first time. Any feelings on that? You know, I, I think it's impossible for us to say this is what it originally looked like, because obviously, well, you and I aren't old enough to have seen these movies originally during their first run. And by the time they were re-released, I, I can't imagine that they were using the most crisp transfers as well, because at that point, it's just, you know, business to get them out there, fill up the, the bill with another B-movie to make a double feature, triple feature, whatever. I don't mind seeing them as crisp and as clear as possible. I would love to see them upconverted. I don't want to see a lot of digital noise reduction. I don't want to see the film grain taken out. 
but I wouldn't mind seeing them cleaned up. I, I would love to see that. What about you? Oh, definitely. I, that doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, I just I don't understand that whole technical thing about remastering and redoing the sound and all of that. I, I just think any time it looks better than you've seen it before is, is great. That's what I want to see. I was just talking with uh, yesterday, actually, with another guest who's going to be on Monster Kid Radio about another movie. I would love to see a little bit more attention paid to the sound. And I know that's difficult, but I think as a podcaster specifically, I, I hear the sound and I hear the hiss in the background of a lot of these older movies. I wish there was a way to kind of take some of that out without taking out any of the other sound that was recorded for the film without making it sound tinny. I mean, you're just starting podcasting, but I, I, have you had much experience with filtering out background noise, leaving your voice sounding kind of tinny and, and, and off? I mean, did you run into that? Oh, yes. Yeah, so I would love to see that done, but how do you do that and not impact the film? I'm sure there's technology out there that I don't, that we don't have access to because we're podcasters and we're doing this on the cheap, but yeah. I would love to see something like White Zombie or, or something like that with that hiss taken out just to make it a little bit more maybe accessible to a modern audience. Right. And in the during the process, is there a way, I mean, if you think about 3D, you've got either it was filmed with 3D cameras or it was up-converted. When they make a Blu-ray out of a print, is it is it similar? Is there a sort of a better way to do it and a, and a worse way to do it? Uh, you know, I really don't know. I, I don't know. When I was working with Dorado Films right before I kind of, you know, took a step back from them, they were just getting their equipment in to start scanning movies in to, you know, a high def to 4K. And I, I don't know what the process is. I, I, I didn't get a chance to learn that machine, so I don't know how it's done. I, I don't know what the technology can or cannot do. Okay, watch what I'm going to do here to bring us back on track. Speaking of technological processes, I don't know that we need to talk much about the way they created the special effects for The Invisible Man. I, I think that's fairly well known knowledge. But, you know, at the time was certainly fantastic. These Invisible Man movies were Oscar nominated uh, for special effects. And uh, John P. Fulton, I believe, is the main guy that was nominated. So, and there's definitely improvement between Invisible Man and Returns. Uh, still a few lines, you know, around pajamas that are, are walking on their own, but not nearly as noticeable as in Invisible Man. And to be honest, any lines that you see in Returns are no worse than that effect you get when, you know, people are driving in a car and obviously the background behind them is projected on a screen and you, you get a little line around them at, you know, no worse than that. Fulton is one of these guys that I would love to learn more about. I know that he was a special photographic effects man. I, I know he did a ton of work. He worked with Hitchcock. He worked with Universal. I mean, he worked on the Ten Commandments. I would like to learn more about this guy. I don't know if there's anything out there. I should research this because what he did was mind-blowing for the time. And even now, I feel like some of the work that you see in The Invisible Man Returns is phenomenal. Yeah. You do see the lines, and yeah, if they put it on Blu-ray, we'd probably see it even better. Uh, you know, go back to that conversation just real quick. If they did put something like this out on Blu-ray and upconverted it and transferred it and made it look real pretty and you end up seeing the strings or the lines, how would you feel about them going and digitally removing that? Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think it's okay. I mean, you know, it's already, already been altered. I mean, it's not exactly the same movie as it originally was. Yeah, I don't know. I'm fumbling here. I, I don't mind it personally, I suppose. I, I guess it's a matter of knowing that that's been done. And I don't know, you think about new generations watching it. I don't know. It's probably not going to matter to them. 
uh, I wonder if it helped them take it a little more seriously. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know how I feel about it. I'm trying to think of other movies that have done similar tricks and have they been released by another st- and the only one that's coming to mind right now is like bed knobs and broomsticks and i don't think disney took out any of the wires that you can kind of sort of see during the final climax of that look at me bringing in a disney movie and i don't even have scott morris on the show <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh yeah we, we could go down a completely different rabbit hole here and a fascinating conversation that you know what if we bring it up again i'll make sure i have you back on the show for it uh back to this film yes <laughs> fulton genius you look at his credits and just so much under his belt he was probably one of these guys who was contracted to universal or whoever and just kept working because there was so much to do right right and i have a note but i totally want to turn this over to you to talk about the music (laughs) han salter frank skinner just give you my opinion watching the movie i didn't so much notice the music throughout the movie other than the end that was a beautiful theme or melody that came up on Vincent's deathbed I know that parts of this music were used in other movies and I think that was probably standard practice at that time but tell me about the music what did you think of it so you're right this was one of those things that Universal had this library of music that would either be used you know in one movie and well We've talked about it. We've had David Schechter on the show. We talked about it. And I think listeners, people who watch these movies can pick up those themes if they if they really listen. I feel like the music in this is gorgeous. I think some of the music in this was original and it would turn up in other movies. There's even been a CD release of the soundtrack. This has been combined with Son of Frankenstein and The Wolfman as a CD release. I believe uh, who put that out. Marco Polo Records, I believe, is the people that put that one out. And it's a great CD. I've got it. Uh, it's it's fantastic. And I love that it even kicks off with the Universal Signature at the very beginning of the, of the CD. That dun, 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 I love that. Uh, I think the music works really well. And towards the end, when you've got the climax and then you have that, I don't know what the technical word is for it, because I love my movie music, but I know very little about music composition. The crescendo, the, the end piece, the finale as he's on the bed. I love that. It's gorgeous, and it is a little different than most of the music in the rest of the film. So if you look away for a second and then come back, you're like, hey, wait, is this the same movie? Because it sounds a little different, but it's still great. Your thoughts? Do you you dig it? Oh, definitely. And I have actually looked up some of the music. I am pretty much using Spotify now for music, which is great because you pay one price a month, but you just can access all kinds of music. So I, I did find some music from... Invisible Man Returns. I think a lot of it was original. And yeah, listening to it outside the movie, it's just standalone. It's fantastic. I love it. It's great. And a lot of the movies from the 40s, I feel like Universal really kind of got it together. You go back to Dracula, The Mummy. The only bit of music in that really, especially with Dracula, is the opening and title music and the end title music. And it's Swan Lake, right? Right. And they use Swan Lake and The Mummy as well and a few other pieces throughout the film. It wasn't until you get into the 40s when the the way of making movies, the aesthetics of presenting a film changed to, to allow a lot of this music to come in. And if you listen to the music from the 40s, it's gorgeous. The 50s starts to recycle a lot of the 40s music because you start building up the stock library and it's cheaper to use what you already have. But if you want some good original universal monster music, go to the 1940s. Yep. Yep. I also feel like we need to talk about the screenplay mm-hmm. by Kurt Siodmak. This was also his first Universal movie. Kurt Siodmak, probably best known for The Wolfman. You may know this as well. I 
noticed in several articles I looked at that a, a man named Cedric Belfridge was supposedly a, a writer as well. Have, do you know who that is? You know, I've seen the name. I don't know much about him. Uh, I don't think he's done a lot of actual writing for films. I think he was more of like a TV presenter type person, like an interviewer maybe did, I don't know, these like little short bits, uh, these short films that you sometimes find TCM playing to fill space between their feature films. <laughs> but I don't know much about the guy. Yeah, I, his name popped up and I, it's the first I had seen him. I didn't really know uh, who he was. But yeah, Siad Mac is just great. I mean, like I said, I like the, the scripts and the screenplays and the stories of these movies and yeah, creating the, the Wolfman, basically. Uh, just There's a lot of humor in the script. We've already talked about just how there's so much more story. I think that totally comes from him. I mean, without Siad Mac, we wouldn't have the Wolfman mythology that we have now. All, all of that stuff, all everything from the Wolfman, pretty much Siad Mac brought it up. He, he made it up whole cloth. The poem, the silver bullet, all of that. Right. That's Siad Mac. And that has become such an iconic piece of werewolf pop culture. We wouldn't have it without him. And, of course, he would go on to do other things as well. Some amazing films he wrote. I Walked with a Zombie with Val Luton. Fantastic film. And he would go on to do many, many other amazing things. The Magnetic Monster, one of my favorite 50s monster movies. Creature from the, with the Atom Brain, which Richard Denning... Great film. I could go on and on and on about Siad Mac. Yeah. I should do a Siad Mac episode. Yeah. So I guess he and several other creative types, this was during World War II, they came over here to the United States. I guess it was sort of a, I don't want to say a fluke, but luck certainly that he got in at Universal and, and got involved in, in movies like this. I believe it was the director, Joe May, that um, hired him. And Joe May was also somebody from Europe. He was born in Vienna. He was involved in the very beginning of German cinema. And he fled to the United States after the Nazis took over because, well, right. Nazis. So he <laughs> come over here. Now, he did a lot of work, like I said, in German cinema over there. I do find it interesting that he came over here fleeing the Nazis. And one of the films that he worked on that he wrote is called The Strange Death of Adolf Hitler. Hmm. I don't know if there's any particular joy in writing that if you know, at the time for him, but interesting. Yeah, definitely. Something it sounds like I need to see. I'm looking at the poster right now from that film. Is he dead? The strange death of Adolf Hitler. Huh. I want to see that now. Yeah. Another interesting fact about the story is H.G. Wells, who of course wrote the book, he was actually alive during uh, the production and distribution of all of these invisible movies. And that's a first for Universal uh, you know, of course, Frankenstein, Dracula coming from literature way back. The authors were not still around. From what I gathered, he pretty much approved uh, of what they were doing. Well, if nothing else, he approved of the paycheck, I think. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> because really, if you look at the Invisible Man film and, and any of these films, the connection they have to the original source material, it's, it's tenuous at best, which is what happened. I mean, the Frankenstein movie, the Dracula movie, they're based more on stage plays and other things than the actual novels themselves. But the ideas are there. Right. And, and the themes are there. And I think the theme of somebody kind of going a little crazy when they become invisible and, and take away the one sense and everything else is just open up to them. I think that's in the original novel. I haven't read the novel in years, but I think that theme is still there. Something else I noticed, I just 
jumping around here like a pinball in a machine, but uh, the love triangle. So as a kid growing up watching all these movies, I guess that's nothing I've really ever picked up on, but re-watching them, it's sort of the formula of all these stories is somewhere within there's a love triangle. Frankenstein had it, Invisible Man, up through the Wolfman, and Love Triangle is a very big part of this movie. You do see that a lot. Uh, House of Frankenstein has it. Uh, You see it in uh, this, of course. You see it in so many films. It seems like almost a trope or a stereotype, but it works. And it makes the story engaging to me. Yeah, and it's often very subtle. I mean, it's there, but... Yeah, sometimes they milk it a little more, I guess, for for drama, and and sometimes they don't. In this case, yeah, there's really not much. I don't know if you could call it a strict triangle. She's certainly not interested in the bad guy, but you know he expresses no, his feeling towards her. So usually, I guess, and this would be appropriate at the times, the the triangle really is uh, uh, between the two men over the the woman, rather than her having conflicting feelings about two men. Right. And I think you really see that, like I said, in the 40s, especially up through like 45 or so, you start to see that very strong. Some of the inner sanctum films seem to follow that formula with Lon Chaney uh, Jr. and those amazing movies. So you start to see that as well. And But yeah, in this one, she doesn't seem very interested. Uh, Richard Cobb, Mr. Cobb is really... I don't know, as far as she's concerned, the vibe that I got from her at the beginning of the movie is that He's a friend. There's maybe a familiar kind of relationship, uh, or familial, excuse me, type of relationship. Obviously, there's not they're not family, but there's that kind of vibe that I'm getting. And she wants him to help get Jeffrey out. She doesn't see him as anything other than that. And well, Cobb obviously has other ideas. Yeah, and there's sort of the relationships to me are a little bit fuzzy. Obviously, Griffin is Griffin's brother from uh, Invisible Man. And uh, Richard Cobb is Jeffrey's cousin. And I don't really understand. Uh, I guess Jeffrey is the owner-operator of the coal mine, but I don't know what Richard's position at the coal mine is. And, uh, yeah, I... Not that any of it matters. It's just, it wasn't really clear to me all of the relationships. What I do like about the relationships is that you do have some solid male-female friendships that don't turn into a romance. Now, obviously, Helen and Jeffrey are a couple. What I do appreciate, though, is that Helen and Frank are clearly friends, but there's none of that romantic sexual tension there. They're just friends. They're equals. And I really appreciated that. I really respond well to strong female characters in these movies because sometimes they're so far and few in between or few and far in between. I always get those words mixed up. Anyway, <laughs> uh, But I do appreciate that a lot. And we haven't talked about her. Nan Gray played Helen Manson, Helen, the fiance. She did turn up in Dracula's Daughter. I don't remember what role. I'll have to go back and rewatch that movie. Darn it. Uh, <laughs> But she did have uh, a career into uh, the early 40s and then did one TV show, and that was about it. I don't know much more about her. Yeah, she was good. Yeah, she had fewer credits than I think anyone else in the cast. Um, And interestingly, uh, a movie after Invisible Man Returns, House of Seven Gables, she made with Vincent Price, Mm -hmm. with Cecil Calloway, with Alan Napier, must have been the, like I said, the next movie they all, a group of them moved on to. 
You know, I keep telling people that I believe the creature from the Black Lagoon is the Kevin Bacon of classic monster movies. He can right. connect everything to creature. Maybe Vincent Price really is the Kevin Bacon here. Yeah, I, I'd i be more inclined to believe that, but I'm not as much a creature aficionado as you. Well, nobody's perfect. It's okay. So do you consider this... <laughs> Just going to let that go, huh? Okay, yeah, go. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so do you consider this a Vincent Price movie? You know, it's tough because you don't actually see him on screen. I I know you and I maybe slightly differ a little bit in our opinion in terms of how much his voice is him in the film. When you think about, I don't know, what you would call a Vincent Price film, you think of The Fly, you think of The Tingler, you think of maybe some of his 60s and 70s work uh, with Roger Corman and some of these other people. Is this a traditional Vincent Price film? No, I don't think so, but I still consider it a Vincent Price vehicle. What about you? Well, I, I'm i going to say no, and here's why. I, I'm holding this story that I, I want to share. It's, at some point, I actually met Vincent Price. Whoa. I think I'm going to hold that and, and wait so that you'll have to ask me back sometime, and, and we'll talk about another Vincent Price movie, and I'll tell you that story. Uh-oh. Okay. Okay. See, see, listeners, that's how you do it. If I get you on the show, you, you tease me with something you're going to bring back later. See, that that's... Well done, sir. You've only been podcasting for two episodes, but you got to figure it out. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think it's, uh, oh, I consider it, you know, early in his career and he's trying a lot of different things out. And, and really, it was House of Wax. From that point on, I would say, you know, that's a Vincent Price movie. I mean, that, at that point, it really was that kind of delightful, gleeful kind of villain type. You, know, you get the House of Wax, you get the Mad Magician, uh, you get a couple of these movies, and then obviously you go into the Dr. Fives realm, or even some of the work he did for Corman, like House of Usher, and th- those are the quintessential type Vincent Price movies. There's a reason why, and it's not just because it's owned by Universal, this movie doesn't turn up in other Vincent Price box sets. But for me, I still consider it a vehicle just because I know it's him. And maybe it's because I know it's him. Right. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Absolutely. But I do hear what you're saying, too, especially when you go back to what you were saying earlier about the voice not necessarily being the the refined voice that we're used to hearing. Right. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what the listeners think, though. So light up Facebook. Let me know what you think. Or call in. I'm going to cut in here because we didn't have any feedback this week. And I know sometimes we don't get a lot of feedback here on the show, but I am genuinely interested in your take. So please feel free to drop us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or send us a voicemail or call us and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. It's 503-4795-MKR. I'll go over all this again at the end of the show. Back to Jeff and the Invisible Man. Well, I mentioned earlier there were two things that I weren't my favorite about this movie. And okay. this one... I mean, it's fine, but it kind of sticks out, and I don't know really why they chose to do it. There's actually a stop-motion sequence in it. There is. I, I forgot about it. Tying uh, up the the feet. You know, obviously, Invisible Man's trying to tie up the feet, but it's such. it kind of sticks out among all the other special effects, and I just wonder. It almost seems like too much work to go through uh, when you could have achieved it probably with the same methods they were using uh, to make the other invisibility effects. What did you think about that? I had forgotten it was in there. When I went back to rewatch this movie last night, I had forgotten that bit was there. And it does stand out. And I do wonder why did they do it that way? They could have just, I don't know, wrapped the rope around the guy's foot, then pulled it off and played it back in reverse. Whatever. They did it with stop motion. And I wonder who did that stop motion. Was it Fulton? 
Was it somebody else? It just doesn't have the same vibe. It's subtle, but it's not the same. And I agree with you. It was like, oh, wait a minute. Stop motion. Oh, okay. Now we're back to normal again. Yeah. yeah. I think I've hit all my points. I don't know uh, of anything else I wanted to be sure to mention. Well, let me ask you. Uh, you said that you prefer this one to the original. Do you prefer this to the other sequels as well? Oh, they're so different. I, it's hard to compare them side by side. I mean, if you, you go to Invisible Woman, if you want a screwball romantic comedy. So I, I really like it for that. But I don't think if I was thinking of the Invisible Man series that uh, I would, com- oh, well, I, I don't know. I'm not expressing what I want to say. I don't think I would be, like if it was Frankenstein, you know, I would say, okay, what one am I in the mood for? I really like the story in this one, I'm going to watch it here. It's just, you know, do I want to laugh and relax or do I want to get a little more into the story? I love Invisible Agent. I mean, that's, uh, to me, invisibility is, and I'm not sure any of the movies really take advantage of it. I mean, think if you were invisible, what would you do? That is such an intriguing thought. And of course they all have the, not all, but most of them have the problem that it's driving them crazy. So that's, you know, why they're doing bad things. But you know, what would you do? And I think the movies where the characters have fun with it are probably my favorites. So um, I think in, in, in Invisible Agent, that's like the first time there's a purpose. We're going to use invisibility to accomplish something. You know, we're not just running around because we're going crazy and we want to do things. There was, you know, a purpose. So that was fun. I even like Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man That because, you know, what's more fun than that? I mean, Costello punching at a bag, acting like he's a big boxer when obviously he's not doing it. That's fun. I think invisibility should be fun. I agree with you. And I think it took me a long time to get my head wrapped around that. I think in my heart, in my head, I knew that without actually being able to articulate it until I saw uh, The Hollow Man from the 90s. Mm-hmm. When in that film, it's an Invisible Man movie starring Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Speaking of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Uh, he's starring Kevin Bacon, and in that, he turns downright despicable and does some terrible, terrible things. And I'm thinking to myself, why? <laughs> Let's have fun with being invisible. Oh, wait a minute. And then I remember things like Invisible Woman or Invisible Agent, which, you know, I'm going to struggle between The Invisible Man Returns and The Invisible Agent being my favorite sequels or installments in this. Because The Invisible Agent's got Peter Laurie, first of all, which is amazing. But John Hall, I feel like, makes a really interesting Invisible Man character, and I, I, I don't think he gets enough credit for what he does. Yeah, I was going to say that. I really, really like him, and I don't know much about him, but he's a very appealing screen presence. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I liked John Hall a lot. And he's good. So, and in, in, of all of these, I haven't mentioned Invisible Man's Revenge, and I guess, I know you said you really like it, but I think maybe that just didn't have as much an impression as all these others had on me. Well, okay. Um, I like it because Carradine's in it, and I like it because I believe Evelyn Anchors is in it. Uh, Evelyn Anchors isn't in it enough, as far as I'm concerned. I love Evelyn Anchors. Big fan. But she's at the beginning, then drives off, and doesn't come back until the end, or near the end. It is a little bit meaner, I suppose, but Return and Agent are my, my two favorites, I think. And, of course, Abbott and Costello meet The Invisible Man is fantastic. If you take Frankenstein out of the mix, that one is my favorite Abbott and Costello film when it comes to the monsters. The, the boxing scene alone sells it. Yes. And I think I guess Invisible Man Returns and Revenge could 
really be the only three sort of trilogy in the uh, series because those do have direct ties to the original story or characters. So, yeah, of those three, uh, definitely Invisible Man Returns. Uh, but sure. then when you consider the others, it just kind of depends what mood I'm in. Yeah, Invisible Woman really has absolutely nothing <laughs> to do uh, with, with any of the other movies. But it's fun. Like you said, it's a screwball comedy. And it's interesting that you can take this quote-unquote monster character and drop them into all these different types of films, all these different genre films. You've got a war movie, kind of, sort of. You've got a thriller. You've got a horror movie, sci-fi horror movie. You've got a screwball comedy. The only thing you're missing is a musical, really. Hey, that's uh, maybe that'll be in the uh, reboot. Okay, so you brought up the reboot. I wasn't going to unless you did, but since you did, you opened the door, sir. Okay. Johnny Depp. Oh. Is, has been has he been signed? Is it official? Is he being the Invisible Man? I don't know. I, as far as I know, yes. Uh, um, I don't what, know. what do you sure. think? I think that could be a good one for him. You know, I haven't always liked what he, he does. He's not one of my favorite actors. You know, after him doing Barnabas Collins in Dark Shadows, there really is no other role uh, he could take that would get any strong feeling out of me one way or the other. <laughs> um, I, wait, 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 wait. Was that a good strong feeling or a bad strong feeling? Uh, it's, it's it's not divisive, bad. So. Not strong okay. bad. I mean, okay. You know, it, it's controversial. It, I don't know if we want to go in a dark shadows tangent. And by the way, if you ever want to talk about dark shadows, please. That that's one I would love to talk about. The the TV series, right? TV or the movies, oh. House of Dark Shadows, Night of Dark Shadows. Ah, okay. But so, you know, I think a lot of people didn't like the new Dark Shadows because it kind of sort of went off the rails and got crazy at the end. I actually think it didn't get crazy enough. I mean, the the tone it was trying to take with a humorous version of Dark Shadows. I think it should have been more exaggerated and more crazy throughout. Um, but I think he was fine. I loved the idea that, you know, they were remaking it. I mean, any time you could take that idea and, and what are the chances, you know, that it can keep being resurrected, pun intended, you know, for modern audiences and for fans of it, I'll take it in any way, shape, or form I can get it. But, uh, okay. you know, I think he would be decent as Invisible Man. Is it related to Tim Burton at all? Uh, see, and that's what I was going to say. I, and this may sound sacrilegious to some, but I'm interested to see what he does with it if Tim Burton is not involved. I am with you 100%. Okay. I, I think and, Tim Burton has made more missteps than Johnny Depp has. And, uh, yeah, I'm really not interested at all in, in that combination for Invisible Man. To bring this back to what we were talking about earlier with the first Invisible Man and James Whale, I feel like Tim Burton has that kind of wacky style that James Whale would have responded to or reacted to. I've often compared the first two Frankenstein movies to the first two Burton films, uh, for Burton Batman films, whereas Frankenstein is Batman, Pride of Frankenstein is Batman Returns, where Burton was allowed to finally do whatever he wanted, or at least within reason. Uh, whereas I feel like Frankenstein's the same way. The first Frankenstein is kind of a studio picture, and the Bride of Frankenstein has a lot of whale stuff injected in there that he got to do finally. Um, I agree with you as well. I think Tim Burton's had a lot of missteps, especially with Johnny Depp. Depp's a good actor. I'd like to see him do something without Burton at the helm. And if we'll see what he does with Invisible Man. I, I don't know. I, a whole bunch of mixed feelings about the reboot and the, the shared universe things. Yeah. And it's not that I'm so 
terribly faithful to the originals. I mean, of course I am, but I think I prefer to see something new and different because it either adds a different perspective or brings something fresh to the story. It's an interpretation of it. And I mean, if you or I were asked to remake Invisible Man or the Mummy or Creature from the Black Lagoon, I'm sure we'd put our own little twist on it. So I encourage that. I mean, I'm not just naturally pessimistic about it, but I, if optimistic at all, it's cautiously. We'll see. Uh, I, I will see the Mummy. We'll see what happens. Uh, I don't know where the Invisible Man remake will sit in terms of of. Uh, the, the, the plan. I know we've got the mummy. I know we've got a, a Dr. Jekyll character in the mummy. I know there's been talk about uh, a Frankenstein film. So I don't know where the invisible man would sit in all of that. So we'll see. And, and speaking of reboots, I, we've all been talking a lot about <laughs> the mummy. Sorry. Uh, sure. But you know, I think coming out before that, I think next month is uh, Kong of Skull Island. And uh, how do we feel about that? So Kong of Skull Island, I, I'm curious. I, <sighs> I'm going to go see it, and I want to support it. I want to support my boy Kong. I love King Kong, and I think people who have listened to the episode last November know that I really appreciate the 76 as well, a version of the film that is. Oh, um, I worry that that movie was just kind of made in service of setting up the Godzilla King Kong film. Mm -hmm. So I, I worry about that. But the trailers look really cool. And see, I've managed to avoid the trailers. I... I, I go back and forth with that, but mostly I don't want to see the trailers. Uh, and especially in a movie like that, I think it, it's going to reveal something that I don't want to see until I see uh, the movie. So I'm kind of going in blind. I mean, yes, definitely want it to be good. Hope that it will be good. I don't really have an impression one way or the other whether it will be. Um, Mummy, I couldn't avoid the trailers since there was so much you know, controversy about that. And I just, I had to know, is it going to be action or are they really turning back to more of a horror? So I did watch that trailer and, but Kong, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it simply because I don't really know much about it. Don't know what they've done with it. Well, I won't say anything uh, about what I know because I don't want to spoil you. Um, but the trailer does reveal Kong. You do see King Kong, which I, I feel like might have been a misstep. I feel like they should have held back on actually revealing the the king. They should have done that, but you know nobody asked me. So, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'll see it. I'm excited to see how that turns out as well. I, I did like the Godzilla remake that Ameri that Legendary did. It's not as good as say like Shin Godzilla or some of the other Godzilla iterations from Toho. But I mean, I liked it for what it was. So to see those continue really i just want those to be successful so the studios go ahead and continue to do pacific rim remake or sequels so i'd like to see that happen more so yeah yeah i think the only thing that worries me is i i mean i'm pretty much i don't know why i have the impression there will be dinosaurs and monsters on the island but i i want them to be i'm gonna say real i i don't really like it when they create a new uh, and that sounds terribly short-sighted but like the one thing i didn't like about godzilla was the his uh, the creatures he was fighting were they weren't familiar they were new right and they didn't really i don't know they didn't work they didn't work for me that well and so i don't want them to do that with kong of skull island let's we don't need to get too original as far as sub plots and and and, and things go 
exactly. I, I think you do need to be able to bring new things into the mythos to keep it fresh if you're going to keep it going. But since they've made such a big deal about how we're going to have some of the other classic monsters turn up in Godzilla 2, why did we even bother with you know an original monster for got the first one? Why did we have the Mutos if we're just going to go ahead and bring in Mothra anyway? Right. You know? So what's what's the point? But I do understand what you're saying as well. And it's a, it's a line you have to walk because you want to bring in more stuff. You want to inject more, more stuff into it. But at what cost? At what expense? You already have so many awesome opponents for Godzilla to fight. Why, why bring in something else? Right, right. I don't know. Boy, we are way off the rails. <laughs> Which happens all the time when you get a couple Monster Kids cabin, right? Yeah, yeah. I love it. That's That's great. Well, you know, <laughs> you're, when you get when you get with Rich, how often does one conversation start and it turns into something totally different? That's true. That's true. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I went for so long being sort of solitary in in these interests, you know. And sure, I was writing, and but you know, I didn't really have anyone that shared my interests that I could talk to. And sort of a latecomer, I guess, to all the the Facebook groups and everything. But boy, in this past year, meeting Rich and. Now meeting you and talking to people online, you know, it's uh, just recharged me and got me all more excited about it because I can actually share and and have these conversations uh, that I've never really had with anyone. I absolutely love it. I love podcasting for that reason right there is being able to connect with other people, find other fans, find my tribe, whether they're here or 9,000 miles away. I know we got listeners down in Australia and I, you know, it's awesome that, that I can connect to those people and vice versa. Facebook, Twitter, which I'm going to start using again, you know, all these wonderful outlets. There's so many other monster kids out there. It, it's crazy to think. That even now, you know, it's 2017 and there are still monster kids out there doing stuff and loving this stuff. And I love it and I'm glad to be part of it. And, and you're part of it. And it's great. Yeah. And everyone is so nice and supporting of each other. I mean, I personally feel like if, uh, you know, I follow someone on Facebook or a page or a blog or something, uh, you know, I do everything I can to support it. You know, I try to like all their posts. I, I just want to encourage you know, everyone to, to have their voice say what they want to get in the conversation. Uh, I, cause I, yeah, it's, it's just great. And yeah, <laughs> I've been involved in other sub genres of, of horror in the past. And I, and I, I appreciate all my time there and, and the connections and the friends that I made there. But I will say that in the classic horror community, the monster kid community, I have not found a more welcoming, a more inclusive group of fans than us monster kids. And that's another thing that I love about exploring these movies with like-minded folks. Yeah, I am of the same mind. I agree with you 100%. Well, The Invisible Man Returns, I think we'll probably just put a bow on it. Um, Great film. Dig it a lot. Wonderful music. Solid performances. A fun story. The special effects hold up, I feel like, for what it is. Specifically, it's a good film and I'm so glad you brought it up on Facebook and we finally thought to talk about it on the show and get you on the show and we'll put, we'll put you back on in the future. Well, we'll have you back. Good. I, I, I passed the test. <laughs> like well, I said, there's no wrong answers. Yeah, well, I, well, yeah. <laughs> well, good, good. I'm glad anytime. You... So in the meantime though, and, and this is actually kind of weird because we're recording before it happens, but it won't be released until after it happens. So present for us now, I'm excited to hear that you and Rich get to introduce Bride of Frankenstein on Valentine's Day. Uh, what theater was that happening at? It's at the Screenland Armor in North Kansas City. It's just uh, 
stone's throw north of downtown Kansas City. No, and uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, and I do want to mention it, even though it will be in the past, because I have been uh, hounding the the owner of Screenland Armor, Adam Roberts, to do a classic monster series, and I really hope we have a good turnout, and the because. Of course, something that's successful, just like a Universal Monster sequel, they're going to do more. So, you know, I hope there's a good turnout and that, uh, you know, next time we talk, we can can talk about the series. Uh, so, I don't know. We'll see. Fingers crossed. So, like I said, it's happening after this recording, but by the time it comes out, I'm sure it was a tremendous success. So, yeah. congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Get, get a little time travel in there. Got a little time stuff. Anyway, uh, Jeff nailed it, listeners. He, that's what you do. If you have access to a local theater, if you can become friends with the people that book the films or own the place or run the, pre- run the place, talk to them about bringing movies in. So what I do at the Joy Cinema. Sounds like that's what Jeff is doing now. I know occasionally Scott will talk to people at the Arclight where he's at. At the Arclight. At the Artcraft where he's at. If you have a local theater... Talk to them about bringing these movies in because a lot of times the people that run these movie theaters love these movies. So you just can't hurt to ask. Yeah. And if you sit around wishing that it would happen, it, it never will. It, it Relatively painless just to ask uh, and to open a conversation about it. Um, I'm sure theater owners will do anything, you know, to bring people in. And uh, this, like, yeah, just you know, never know if you don't ask. Exactly. Listeners can hear Jeff and Rich Chamberlain, the Monster Movie Kid, at the Classic Horrors Club podcast. It's part of the Downright Creepy Network. And what was the other network? Phantom Podcast Network. Phantom Podcast Network, which I believe is how you have to look it up in iTunes. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so look up Phantom Podcast Network in iTunes. Follow Jeff at ClassicHorrors.club. And Classic Horrors also has a Facebook page, right? Yes, at Classic Horrors. And uh, we're... Everywhere, Twitter, at Classic underscore Horrors. Got a Pinterest page where I put uh, movie posters, Classic Horrors C. Uh, And we even have a a YouTube channel where uh, I'll post uh, trailers. I don't use Pinterest these days. I I really need to figure out how to make that work for the podcast. Maybe you and I will talk off mic. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know uh, if it's – I don't know if you'd compare it to Instagram. That's the one thing I don't have, which that's – I'm the opposite of you, except with Instagram. I'm not really sure how to incorporate that, but uh, yeah, Pinterest is is great. I like that. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure, man. It really has. Thank you for doing this, and we will have you back on. Uh, well, we're we're going to have you on to talk about Vincent Price again, I'm sure. And I did clear it through Larry, through Dr. Green. He says there's plenty of Vincent Price to talk about with everybody, so I have no problem bringing you back on to talk about Price some more. Good. Thank you so much, Derek. <laughs> like I said at the beginning, and it, it holds out through the end, it was a true pleasure uh, and a thrill to be on. So thank you. I probably should have mentioned at the top of the show, this is a recording that was done months ago. This recording actually was one of the ones that was lost when I had that hard drive crash a while back. Well, thanks to Tom Doffel. Again, shout out to Tom. We were able to recover most of the data that was lost, and this happened to be on the hard drive. So we have it, except this recording took place months ago which means that uh, that whole screening thing that Jeff and Rich did that we talked about, yeah, that already happened. That was a long time ago. Also, 
They are now up to episode five of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I know when we recorded, we were talking about episode number two being on the horizon. Their show continues to just get better and better, and I'm really enjoying it. The most recent episode is about a handful of the Amicus anthology films. They called their episode The Oblong Madhouse That Dripped Blood. So you can kind of guess which movies they talk about in that episode. It's a fun conversation. Again, highly recommended. Jeff is a good guy. Definitely a friend of the show. We are definitely going to have him back. I'm not going to forget that he's got a Vincent Price story to tell. He met Vincent Price. How amazing is that? And that he held on to it. He didn't share it with us this time. Yeah, he knows how it works. He's teasing us. Jeff, we'll have you back on the show in the future, my friend. The man they are burying in a subterranean world of horror is a victim of the Oblong Box. Now, for the first time, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee star in Edgar Allan Poe's tale of the living dead, The Oblong Box. The Oblong Box in color from American International is rated M. There's an enemy spy at large, an invisible man. Amazing. Oh, you will be of great help to us. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See The Invisible Agent, suggested by H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, starring Ilona Massey and John Hall, with Peter Lorre, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Bosserman, in the most amazing story of our time. Ah! Did you know? Don't let him get away. Achoo, Gazunta. Who is there? How did you know I was going to England? I didn't, but... So but the I... trap was all set, eh? Oh, Frank, how can you talk like that? Oh, well, what's this? Uh, it's full of hooks. Uh, oh, they're tearing into me. Dr. Lee Cushing, welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. 
please come again and remember the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Come in. Come closer. Closer. That's right. I'm Vincent Price. You'll be just as safe in this house of fear as any of the other five victims murdered by the bat. In all of the annals of mystery, there's never been a more elusive, fearsome, and cunning killer. He'll lure you through hidden passages to make you his next victim. But nobody lives forever, so why be afraid of the bat? you've been dead? Oh, I'd say about a half an hour. Do you believe it was the bat? That's a bat's trademark. Perhaps he's still in the house. That's possible. It says here that the bat never leaves no fingerprints. That's understandable. Having no face, he probably has no fingers either. waiting for you. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thanks for being part of the show this week by downloading and checking it out. You know, if you download it through iTunes, please consider giving us an iTunes review, an honest iTunes review. If you downloaded the show through any other podcatcher, well, if they have a review system, well, you know what to do. Thanks for sharing the links and, and retweeting and all that other stuff that you all do when you're on social media talking about Monster Kid Radio. It means a lot to me to know that you guys and gals are enjoying it. I enjoy producing the show and I enjoy talking with new people. I also enjoy talking with old friends and that's what's going to happen next week on the show episode number 319 we have the return of dr drek my friend and yours michael ledgy michael recently put out a new book called monster kidding we're going to talk about that and a handful of other things next week here on monster kid radio so come back here between now and then though of course you can check out our website our contact information once again monsterkidradio at gmail.com and our voicemail line is 503-479-5657 that's 5MKR. And one of these days, I'm going to remember that myself, and I won't have to go look it up every single time I talk about it on the show. We also have links to our Letterboxd page, our Patreon page, where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show. That way, we have links to every single band that's been on the show. Well, and links to every single episode. You know, recently, somebody mentioned not being able to download past the last 100 episodes of Monster Kid Radio on iTunes. I 
fiddled with a few switches here, and now the last 300 episodes are available on iTunes. I don't know if I can force it to go any higher than that, but if you're just itching to listen to the first handful of episodes of Monster Kid Radio and you can't get them through iTunes or some other podcatcher, you can always download them straight from our website. Before I sign off, I just want to say, well, something that I've been saying on Facebook a lot lately, and I apologize if it's getting old hat, but you know, guys and gals, monster kids, thank you so much. The past month or so have been pretty trying here at the Monster Kid Radio Castle, and you know, I I couldn't have gotten through it all if not for the support of people like my incredible wife who's in the other room, my family, and my friends, and well, that's you. So again, thank you so much for your support, your email, your phone calls, your cards, and your incredible generosity to help me just kind of stay on the monster kid path. Really appreciate it. I know I'm not the only one out there suffering right now. Uh, Dear friend of the show, Larry Underwood, you know, I want to put a shout out to him and just let him know that we're here for him as well. He's dealing with some stuff right now. And, you know, I'm just amazed that you guys and gals are part of my life. So thank you so much. Okay, let's go ahead and sign off. Again, we're going to play the song Road Trip from the band The Kahuna Kings. You can find them on Bandcamp. Go to thekahunakings.bandcamp.com. You can find them on CD Baby as well. CDBaby.com and then just look for The Kahuna Kings. The album is called Who Wants to Party with The Kahuna Kings. They also have a Facebook page, so why don't you drop by and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. You probably don't need to tell them, though, that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that's doesn't apply to the song I'm about to play. Talk to everybody next week when we have you back here with Michael Ledgy and Monster Kidding. I'm Derek M. Cook. This is Monster Kid Radio. Ciao.